Dear Father, thank you for your kindness to this body and your stewardship of all that you've given to us and all that you have enabled us to do. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have as a body in these difficult days and in these end times to be teaching about such important matters. And thank you that we have a community that is growing and excited to learn so that they too, Father, may serve you better in these days. Father, we look forward to the day you'll allow us to come back together. We see that day coming. We believe it's soon. We pray, Father, for that, that you would grant us that privilege. And when we do gather, Father, I pray that we would have a new uh, and deeper appreciation for that gift of community together gathered as one body. But Father, the time apart is not yet done. And so in the days, weeks that remain, finish what you have started with us in this time, a time in which we would be still and know that you are the Lord, that we would devote ourselves to study and be prepared and sober and serious about our knowledge of you so that we may walk in a deeper, abiding life with you. And I pray, Father, that you would give us that outcome. So as we look back on this season, perhaps years from now, and we think back to what we experienced during these difficult times, I pray, Father, our principal memory will be of the deep abiding relationship we established in your word and in the way that launched us forward into greater ministry. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, open your Bibles with me. Matthew chapter 25. We are now at the point of the end of our study of the Olivet Discourse. Everybody lets out an amen with that, I know. And at the same time, we're also coming to the end of the eschatology teaching within the Gospel of Matthew. After this chapter, there is no more eschatology in Matthew's Gospel. After today, we're gonna enter in the final phase, the final stage of this Gospel. We're gonna look at Jesus' events at the Last Supper, his betrayal, his passion, and resurrection. But... Before we get to that climactic section, and by the way, I should add, if you're new to this study or if you haven't been following it uh, regularly, let me just commend this to you. Let me recommend and encourage you. Stay with us from this point forward. Be sure to listen every week. I know you're gonna hear some things in the coming weeks that are gonna surprise you and edify you. There is a lot of myth and folklore that has come into the church surrounding the events of Jesus' death and resurrection that we can set straight now by just paying attention to what the Bible says. And I would encourage you to be a part of that study with me. But before we get there, we need to finish the parables of Matthew 25. And because we, as we learned last week, Jesus has organized his teaching in in Matthew 24 and 25 in a chiasm, then that helps us know where we're going today. You may remember last week as we studied in this area, the chapter 25 of the Olivet Discourse, we learned what a chiasm was. We learned last week uh, that chapter 25 repeats the teaching of chapter 24, but in a chiastic structure, which means the second half of all that teaching goes in reverse of the way that it went in chapter 24. And so that means when you look at chapter 24, Jesus taught first on his second coming and then a judgment that would happen for unbelievers. And then after that, he taught on his coming for the church, which we call the rapture, and the judgment that would follow for believers at that point. And that means now in chapter 25, we're studying parables that go in reverse order. We start with the rapture, we end with the second coming. So it's not a chronological discussion all the way through these two chapters, it's chiastic. And as we go into that last part now, the part of the second coming of Christ and the judgment that will follow for those he finds on earth, 
You may start to think, well, gee, this isn't gonna be a section that is very relevant for me. I mean, I'm a Christian, I won't be there, this won't affect me, and so on. But I gotta tell you, that's not true. There's actually a lot more going on here than you may think, and it is certainly very relevant for us to be studying it, and you'll see why as we get through it today. So let's study it, let's pick up where we left off. We were in chapter 25, verse 31. That's where we leave off and come back in today, so why don't we start there? And in chapter 25, verse 31, this is what we read. Jesus says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now it goes on from there, but we're gonna pause for just a moment. I wanna set the stage for you here. He has just returned to the topic of the second coming, his return at the end of this age to set up a kingdom age on this earth. And how do we know that? Well, we know it for two reasons. First, the chiasm again. It tells us we're going backward. We're going back to the first topic of chapter 24. But even if we didn't know about the chiasm, we could tell that he was talking about the second coming by the details. First, he says, this is a return that will be one of glory, accompanied by angels, and all the world will see this coming. But we know that's not the rapture. Because as we've already learned, the rapture or the coming of the Lord, as it's sometimes called, is not in glory, it's hidden in the clouds. It's not accompanied by angels, it's accompanied by those saints who have already passed away, and it is invisible to the world. The world will not see it happen, they will simply see the consequences of it. And then secondly, he says at this coming, we see now in chapter 25, he comes to judge all the nations, to separate the sheep from the goats. But then again, tells us this is not the rapture, because the rapture follows with a moment of judgment for believers, not for unbelievers. So Jesus is describing events here of his second coming. And this happens, as I said, at the end of a seven-year period that we call tribulation. And at that time, Jesus says when he comes, he will sit on a glorious throne to judge the nations that he finds waiting for him on the earth at that time. Now, I wanna be clear about something. This judgment that he's describing is not the final eternal judgment for unbelievers. According to the book of Revelation, the final eternal judgment for unbelievers happens only after the thousand-year kingdom has come to its end. But here in chapter 25, Jesus is describing his second coming, which happens before the kingdom even begins. So this is a different judgment. This is a judgment not of the eternal fate of unbelievers. This is a judgment for those who are on the earth and still alive to determine whether or not they may enter the kingdom. Jesus explains more about what happens in this judgment starting here in verse 32, but he also alluded to it earlier in chapter 24. Remember, in the chiasm, everything we're learning in chapter 25 is a repetition of what we've already heard in chapter 24. So let's go back to 24 for just a moment. Verse 30. In Matthew 24, 30, Jesus describes this same moment in these words. He says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Here again, this is his second coming. And at his second coming, Jesus said he will appear as a bright light in an otherwise pitch black sky. Remember, sun, moon, and stars have all been taken away by this point. And so all the world has no choice but to see him because it's the only light they can see. 
coming out of the darkness in power and in glory. And he says, when this sight is revealed to the world, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why are they mourning? Well, remember, we learned this in chapter 24. The unbelieving world took the mark of the beast during the time of tribulation, which means they worshiped the Antichrist as Messiah. And so now they look up and they see the true Messiah returning to defeat the Antichrist and the world realizes this is not gonna go well for us. And so they're mourning that appearing. And at that moment, Jesus says in Matthew 24 that he sends his angels around the globe to gather the elect from wherever they are and bring them back to him at Jerusalem where he has come. The elect, of course, referred to the believers, primarily Jews of that day who have come to faith during tribulation, and they are still alive, they've never died, and they're being collected. It'd be interesting to see how this actually happens, obviously. Angels picking up human beings from wherever they are and moving them to Jerusalem, gathering to meet Jesus, preparing to participate in the feast that will inaugurate the opening of the kingdom. Now that's what we learned back in chapter 24. Back now in chapter 25, verse 32, we learn something new. Jesus says, well, it's not just the elect that are gonna be gathered at that time, but he says all nations will be gathered to him, which means these angels are also collecting the unbelievers who are on the earth and still alive wherever they may be. So who are these unbelievers that Jesus is now collecting to himself from anywhere on the earth? Well, I can tell you who they are not. They are not the unbelievers who are participating in the army of the Antichrist that was battling against the Jews in the city of Jerusalem in the war of Armageddon, which we studied about in our Revelation class. We know it's not those unbelievers because Revelation 19 and Zechariah 14 both tell us that everyone who participates in that battle, everyone who is in the army, including the Antichrist himself, will be killed by Jesus when he returns. So the nations of unbelievers that are being gathered now in this moment must be all unbelievers on earth who were not fighting in the army but were still somewhere else on the earth, all of whom were worshiping the Antichrist before Jesus came back. And now you have Jesus seated on a throne gathering all of these rebels as well as his elect together in one spot for a judgment. And now Jesus has to decide what to do with all of these people. And that's the purpose of this judgment. It's a judgment to determine who is able to enter into the kingdom, which is now about to start, and who is not. And to explain that moment in more detail, we go forward from this point into a parable. Jesus begins a parabolic form in verse 32. He starts talking about a shepherd and sheep and goats. He says that's what this judgment will be like. And of course, he's comparing himself to the shepherd And he uses a very common scene from everyday agrarian life in the day of Jesus, that is, of a shepherd doing a task that every shepherd did at the end of the day. Goat and goats and sheep uh, under the care of a single shepherd would be allowed out during the day to go grazing in pasture. They'd mix together sometimes. It didn't really matter whether they were together or whether they were separate during the day. They could just graze anywhere they wanted. But at night, it was common to put these animals back into their separate pens to segregate them back into their proper area. And so the shepherd would bring this herd back at the end of the day from the field and he would line up the sheep to enter into their pen. And as he's doing that, of course, some of the goats are still mixed in and following along with the sheep. So the shepherd would stand right at the door of the pen 
And as the sheep began to file in, if he got a goat, he would then drive the goat out of the line and separate the goats from the sheep. So the sheep went into the pen first. The goats were not put in a pen. They were just separated. And then later he would move the goats where they needed to be. So Jesus says, if you want to understand what I'm going to be doing at this judgment, just use that comparison and you have a pretty good idea. Christ will determine who are his sheep and who are the goats, and he will separate them one from another at this point. Now, before we look at the rest of the detail, let me ask a a basic question that we need to ask. What is a sheep in this parable? What is a goat? What do they stand for? What do they mean? Well, to learn, let's read through the rest of this parable because it becomes self-evident which group is which. Matthew 25, 33, Jesus says, he will put the sheep on his right and he will put the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care for you? Then he answered them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All right, so to determine here what a sheep is or what a goat is, it's pretty obvious now you only need to look at the ultimate outcome for each of these two groups to get your answer. To cut to the chase, verse 34, the sheep are those who enter the kingdom. Verse 46, the goats are those who will enter hell. So without a doubt, we know that the sheep here represent the believer, for only the believer will have opportunity to enter the kingdom on that day. And for the same reason, we know the goats are unbelievers, so because only unbelievers are consigned to hell. So the separating of the sheep from the goats is a judgment to determine who may enter the kingdom on this first day because they have faith and who will be put to death on this day because they do not. And death is the only option at this point to not entering the kingdom because scripture says this, the kingdom when it comes will fill the entire earth. Scripture says it this way in Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before him. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. That's just one quote. There's many like that in the Old Testament we can share with you. But they all say the same thing. That the kingdom fills the earth. The knowledge of the Lord fills the earth. On day one in the kingdom, it is all the earth that is the kingdom. And all of it is filled with believers and nothing except believers. So if the kingdom fills the whole earth and only believers can be in this kingdom, 
then by definition, there will be no place left on earth for unbelievers. And therefore, the only other option for an unbeliever who's living on the earth right before the kingdom begins is to be put to death because there is no place for them to live on the earth. Now, you may wonder a new question at this point. You may wonder, well, gee, why don't these unbelievers just confess Christ now, at this moment, rather than face death and certainty in hell? Clearly, these goats now recognize that Jesus is Lord. I mean, it's kind of hard to miss. He's sitting on a glorious throne with angels all around him. I mean, it's obvious, right? And they haven't died yet, so you would think they still have a moment of opportunity. Uh, Why don't they just make this confession of faith now? Well, in fact, these unbelievers will confess Christ, either now or at least at some point, because Scripture says so. Paul says in Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are, listen, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, referring to hell. And he says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, we know on the authority of Scripture that all humanity, including these unbelievers, sooner or later, will confess Christ. But did you notice what Paul did not say in Philippians 2? He did not say all will have saving faith. That's different. In fact, it is literally impossible for these believers now, standing before Jesus, to have saving faith in Jesus. Because any confession that they might make at this point cannot be based on faith, because Jesus can be plainly seen as Lord, and faith is not sight. Paul tells us this elsewhere in Scripture. Now, in this passage, I'll read you from Romans. He uses the word hope, but it's a synonym for faith in this context. So wherever I say the word hope, just hear the word faith. It's the same thing. Paul says this in Romans 8, 24. For in hope, we have been saved. You can say it this way. In faith, we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So Paul says this is a principle of Scripture. This is a precept of your Bible. Paul says you cannot have faith in something that you already see. Those two things are mutually exclusive. Once something is self-evident, that is you can see it, there's no doubt in it, well then it no longer depends upon faith to believe in it or to acknowledge it. Therefore, once these goats, these unbelievers, see Jesus, the time for faith will be over. They will not be able to show faith in him because sight nullifies faith. Anything they would say at this point is merely stating the obvious, and you do not get credit for stating the obvious. Salvation is based on faith, that is, a confidence in something unseen. And without faith, they will be judged and put to death and enter hell, like all unbelievers. Now, as this judgment moment plays out, Jesus starts by saying he puts sheep on one side, his right, and goats on the left, and then he begins to tell them what their fate will be, starting with the sheep, saying, you will enter into the kingdom. And if you notice, in both cases, the two groups begin to question their respective fates. They, they ask Jesus, the first the believers in verse 34, they ask uh, Jesus to explain why is this our judgment, starting with the sheep. And he tells the sheep here, well, you are blessed by God to inherit the kingdom of God, and that's where the question comes. 
Now, before we look at his answer to them, I want you to look at what he's promising them because that has a lot to do with why they asked the question. Jesus uses the word inheritance. Do you notice that? He says, to inherit the kingdom of God. He uses the word inheritance to describe not only the fact that they are coming into the kingdom, but they're coming into something waiting for them in the kingdom. As we learned last week, they're coming in to their eternal riches, to their eternal reward, something all believers will have in the kingdom. And I want you to understand why Jesus is using this terminology. Why is he saying the kingdom is our inheritance? And to understand it, we need to think carefully about what an inheritance is. An inheritance, simply put, is something you receive because you are an heir of someone who died. For example, let's say you and your siblings are the heirs to a great fortune to be handed down to you by your father when he dies. That fortune, when he dies, will be split among all his children, and that would include you because you are one of his children in this case. And remember, you did nothing to become an heir. You didn't earn it. I mean, you were made an heir, by the actions of your parents and the mere fact that they brought you into this world and made you part of a family. That alone qualified you to be an heir. So the opportunity to share in that inheritance had nothing to do with your choices or your actions or anything you did to deserve it. You simply were born, and as a result, you became an heir. But you can influence how much of your father's wealth might be assigned to you in his last will and testament because presumably if you do a lot to please your father during your earthly life, you may influence him to assign you a greater portion of the inheritance relative to your other brothers and sisters. And on the same case, if you fail to please your father, you may receive less. But regardless of your behavior, you are an heir by birth alone. That is the analogy that the Bible uses to describe our rewards in the kingdom. It is an inheritance. Let me give you some background. First, the Bible says we are fellow heirs with Christ. Paul says this in Romans 8 again, verse 15. He says, you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. We are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now you notice the Bible there says that our faith adopted us into the family of God. We had to be adopted into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ because we did not come out of our mother's womb believing in Jesus Christ. Everyone, all humanity, are born naturally into this world as children of wrath, the Bible says. Members of Satan's family, technically speaking, because we all have the same sin nature that Satan himself has. So we were born in the nature of Adam, which is to say of Satan. And that is why, the Bible says, in order to go to heaven, you have to be born again. You have to be born again by faith in Jesus, and in this spiritual rebirth, you then are adopted by God into a new family, out of the family of Adam, into the family of Christ, part of the family of God. That's what Paul just said. And in the rest of that passage, Paul says, if you are a part of the family of God, then you are an heir of the Father, an heir with Christ, he says, because Christ himself is an heir. He is an heir of all things in creation. Listen to this verse from Hebrews chapter one, verse two. 
The writer says, in these last days, the Father has spoken to us in his Son, whom the Father appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now, the Father, we're told there, appointed his Son, Jesus, to be an heir, to receive an inheritance of everything in creation. But that just begs this interesting question, doesn't it? If Christ is the heir, well, then who's dying to give him that inheritance? Well, did you notice in Hebrews chapter one, the writer also said that it is through Christ that all things were made. Christ is the creator in the Godhead. He is the word, as John says. He is the one who spoke everything into existence. So Christ plays both roles. Christ is both the one who has the inheritance because he created it all. He's also the one who dies to leave it to his heirs, to those who are in the family of God. And when he died on the cross, his inheritance, that is the creation itself, became available to Christ's heirs. And who is an heir of Christ? Well, anyone who is in the family of God, or let's say it this way, anyone who is in his last will and testament. You know, the word testament in scripture also means covenant. So we could say anyone who is in his covenant is an heir, and as such, they receive what was available when the one with the inheritance died, when Christ died. But here's the interesting twist with Christ. Three days after he died, he was raised back from the dead. He became alive again, and that's why he is also an heir. Christ is an heir as well because he receives back his own inheritance. It would be just as if your rich father dies, and then all the kids get the inheritance, and then three days later, your father came back to life. You'd have some real mixed emotions about that moment. And as he comes back to life, your father comes back to you and says, you know what, I'm back here again, I want my inheritance back. You can have it again when I die the next time, but I'm back now, I want it back. Okay, that's where this changes for Jesus, because he'll never die again. There is no second time, the Bible says. So when Jesus came back to life, he received back his own inheritance, that means he's an heir, and he is choosing willingly, the Bible says, to share his inheritance with the rest of the sons and daughters of God because that way he can include us in that inheritance. That's how we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Our inheritance then is a share of all of what Christ created in the creation, the world and all it contains, and we will receive our share of that as our reward in the kingdom some portion of this world in its new form in the kingdom will be ours. I have my sights on Maui. You can visit, it's okay, but I think that's what I'm going to get. Let's just hope that I'm right. That's why Jesus is telling the sheep in this moment about the judgment from the point of view of an inheritance. He's saying, you were heirs. He says, you were chosen by God before the foundations of the world to be adopted into the family of God. And like the children of a rich father, These believers did nothing to make themselves members of the family of God. The Father gave them birth again. They were born again by the Spirit. They entered into an adopted family by the kindness and mercy of God. They simply found themselves as heirs at some point in time. And as Paul says in Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So now that the kingdom has arrived, 
These believers are being welcomed not only into the existence of the kingdom, but into a receiving of their inheritance. They are heirs with Christ. They'll have some portion of this kingdom waiting for them because they served Christ well. And that's what he says to them. He begins to give them the the list of things that he saw them doing. James, in his letter, sums this whole thing up in such a, a simple way in one verse. I want you to listen to what James says and listen to how he covers everything we just talked about. James 2, 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? That's our future. Made heirs by the choice of God through our faith in Jesus Christ, now heirs with Christ of something glorious to come. And the only question is, will we please Christ? Please him, and you may see more of what he has available. But we're all heirs by our faith alone. Interestingly, when you think about these sheep for a moment, the ones that he's talking to now, we know they're all babes in Christ. How do we know that? Well, they have to be relatively immature believers with relatively little training, perhaps even no discipleship, because they came to faith during the seven-year tribulation. If they had had faith already prior to that, they would have been raptured with the church. So we know that they have had a very short time something less than seven years, to know of what it means to follow the Lord. And they came to faith in probably the most dangerous time in all the history of the church, when there has been a very difficult time being able to express and work with your faith. They probably had very little chance for fellowship with other believers or to be discipled. They had very limited opportunities to grow in service to Jesus. Uh, They've probably been under persecution, and we know they've been under persecution most of that time. I think of them a little bit like soldiers who received a, a battlefield promotion. You know, they were just thrown into the fight and then given this new assignment, and now they gotta figure it out as they go. Now, they had the spirit with them, and that makes all the difference, obviously. But what they didn't have is that patient, steady uh, stream of discipleship opportunities that we tend to take for granted today. And what they're hearing now, after that walk with Jesus is over, after they've run their race, so to speak, as Paul would say, they stand before Jesus for this judgment and they find out not only are they saved and going into the kingdom, which I presume they must have known, But more than that, they're told you served well and you will have an inheritance. And to that, it seems they're so surprised. In fact, the sense of the text is they didn't even know they were serving Jesus when they were doing what they were doing. And so to help them understand that, he begins to recount the good things. Verses uh, 35 and 36, he lists six things that these believers did including things like giving Jesus food, water, clothing, medical care, and the like, visiting him in prison, and so on. And he says, these are the things you did for me. In verse 37, he, he, you notice he calls these individuals the righteous, and that is a confirmation to us that these are people who were saved by their faith. But then in verses 37 and 38, they respond to him saying, we don't remember seeing you. This is the first time we've ever seen you. How could we have been doing all those things for you? And the answer he tells them is this. He points to another group of people somewhere nearby, standing there, and he calls them my brothers. And he says to these sheep, when you did those things for these people, you were doing them for me. Who is this other group of believers that he calls my brothers? These other people that were there with the sheep in tribulation, the people that these sheep, these believers, served during this time, who are they? 
Well, we know that he must be talking about believers, other believers, who were being persecuted in tribulation, but I think he's actually going one step further. The fact that he calls them my brothers is a likely reference to the Jews who were living during tribulation, who ultimately came to faith at the end of the tribulation, at the second coming of Christ, which we studied earlier. And in that time, the book of Revelation says that the Jewish people will be the most persecuted people, the biggest target of the Antichrist during that seven years. Satan, who will be very active during that time, will indwell the body of the Antichrist, we're told, and in that way he will seek to exterminate the Jewish nation using unprecedented levels of persecution. But the Lord has the plan to rescue his people from out of tribulation, ultimately to bring a remnant of Israel to faith at the end. And so in the meantime, during those seven years, the Lord knows that his people will endure great trial and be at great risk, so they will need the comfort and support of allies. And here's what we're learning now. We're learning that the allies that Jesus sends to those persecuted Jews during this time of tribulation will be the new Gentile believers who have come to faith in tribulation and in that faith response, they will serve the Jewish people of that time in compassion, seeing them persecuted and feeling a desire to show Christ's love to them. They will feed these people when they can't eat otherwise. He will clothe them, they will protect them, they will assist them in all these various ways, and perhaps they will do the same for Gentile believers as well, doing all of this as a response to the faith that they now have. And they will do it at great personal sacrifice, we're sure, because anyone who aligns themselves with the targets of the Antichrist will likewise be targets. I mean, it'd be much like those who hid the Jews from the Nazis during World War II. If you did that, you took the risk of going to the concentration camps yourself. And in all that they're doing here, it's a demonstration of faith. Jesus says your service during this time is viewed as if you rendered it directly to me personally. I'm guessing they were not discipled in their faith, as I said earlier. I'm, I'm guessing that they had very little contact with the local church. I'm guessing they couldn't study their Bible. I'm guessing that perhaps they didn't even have access to a Bible. I'm pretty sure none of them knew much about eternal rewards because very few people in the church today even know much about eternal rewards. And nonetheless, despite all of those handicaps, just their faith alone was enough to cause them to serve others under such difficult circumstances, and their selfless service became a testimony to their faith and ultimately an opportunity for eternal reward in the kingdom. Now, I know that after we've done this series of weeks of teaching in this Olivet Discourse, I know that for some of you, because I've heard this, have struggled a little bit with the portion of this teaching that's touched on our eternal reward and the way that that process of assigning reward will go in the day of our judgment. Perhaps you're now wondering to yourself, you know, have I done enough to please Jesus? Um, am I gonna get a reward? Am I gonna get any kind of reward? Am I, am I too far behind now that I can't catch up and do what Jesus wants me to do? I know there's some of you out there that are probably saying, Oh, great, here's another thing that I have to worry about, something else on my to-do list that I can't find time for. And so you're just stressing over the pressure, you know, the pressure to find your spiritual gift and the pressure to volunteer and do something for the church or whatever it is you're thinking. Look, if that's what you're thinking right now, 
then I want you to let the story of these sheep be an encouragement to you because they are the model of how you get ready for your internal, uh, eternal rewards. Listen to what Jesus told these believers and I want you to let it take the burden off your shoulders, the burden that you've put on yourself by how you've perceived what the Bible is saying. How Jesus said that they were serving him even when they didn't know they were doing it. Think about that for a moment. Remember what Jesus said about what it would be like to serve him? He said this in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now look what he just said. Jesus said serving him will be like resting from heavy burdens. Because serving Jesus is doing something your heart wants to do. When we serve Jesus, you do it with spiritual abilities that he gave you. Uh, He gives you the opportunities in your path. He brings the fruit from your service. He causes the good things to happen. He directs people into your path. He solves the financial dilemmas that you come up. I mean, he does all the work. What exactly are you doing? Honestly, you just simply show up. That's it. Serving Jesus is not about your ability. It's about your availability. And notice back in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, which I just read you, Jesus even says, if you want to serve him, you want to put down the heavy laden burdens that you have and take up his easy yoke. He says, it just starts, he says, by learning from him. That's what he said. He said, take up my yoke upon you and learn from me. And what you learn is that he's gentle and humble. He teaches you, and he uses a process of teaching so that learning itself is not hard, it's not burdensome, the experiences just flow from one lesson to the next. You just follow him wherever he's going, he'll send you where that is, he'll tell you what to do, he's given you the power to do it, he's gonna achieve the results through you, you don't even have to do that. Friends, that is light work. That's pretty easy when you think about it. There's not a lot of burden involved in that. It's like Jesus gave us a box And on the side of the box, it says, some assembly required. And at the same time, he gave you the thing to build, all the materials to build it, all the tools to build it, and a bunch of easy written instructions in plain English. And all he asks you to do is open the box. Take a step, you know, serve him where you are. Do something. But he's not asking you to figure out the whole plan. He's not asking you to move mountains on your own. And that kind of work is actually a form of rest, he says. Why? Because if you compare that to the burden of working to serve the world and the world's demands and the world's interests and the world's priorities, well, friends, serving the world is truly a burden because the world is never satisfied and the work is never easy and the rewards are fleeting at best. So if you think that what we've learned is that serving Jesus is just another burden on top of all the other ones you already have, then you're not doing it right. The work of serving Christ is supposed to replace the heavy burdens of serving the world. You're supposed to say no to something so that you can say yes to Jesus. And if you think about that more, go back to the sheep with me for a minute and look at how easy it is. When they were serving Jesus, they were just feeding or clothing some needy Jew. They were trading something in the world that they already had for opportunity to serve in that way. So so maybe they took food off their own table. That was a sacrifice. And they gave it to someone who needed it. 
Or maybe they had to sacrifice their family's safety to put themselves at risk to help these persecuted Jews. Or they had to give up space in their house for a refugee or whatever it was. They set aside an earthly priority, a worldly goal, to serve Jesus because why? Because they felt compelled to show love to someone else. That was it. They weren't Bible experts. They they probably never set foot in a church. They certainly didn't spend decades seeking the perfect mission opportunity somewhere for just them, you know, all of that. They didn't even know they were serving Christ. All they knew was that they had a heart for someone in need that God directed them to for a very specific purpose. That's what serving Jesus looks like when you know you're serving a gentle and humble master. You don't feel pressured. You you, you don't resent the fact that you have to make a sacrifice. You don't even think of it as work. You feel you're finally doing what you were created to do. And the sacrifices will be an honor, a privilege. The results seem to come easily. You find joy in it. It's not something you wake up every day thinking, oh, I gotta do this again. You wake up every day excited to do that. That's my own personal testimony of moving out of corporate life and into ministry life. It was like, finally, I, have to, I get to quit working. <laughs> and now I just do what I love. It doesn't feel like work anymore. So if you're stressing over serving Christ, or on missing out on eternal reward, let me make this really easy for you. Here's the recipe. Wake up every day and look at what's on your to-do list or on your calendar and just ask yourself one question. How do I make everything that I'm planning to do today about serving Jesus in those places I'm going, in those things that I'm doing? How do I show Christ's love to everyone I'm going to interact with today in my existing plan? If you take that attitude every day, the Lord is gonna direct you. He'll direct you into moments, he'll direct you to people, and he'll give you opportunity to serve. That is light and easy burden, and I'm here to tell you, if you live that way, when you get to your judgment moment, you're gonna be surprised at how much you did for Jesus that you were not even counting on. Because we tend to see things in such simplistic ways, we don't appreciate how much the Lord can use us in a variety of ways. That's what this lesson has been about. Now, before we end today, we need to cover Jesus' comment to the goats because they're still sitting in this passage, right? And they, too, were confused by their circumstances. In verse 41, when he turned to the goats on his left and he said, depart from me. Remember, the kingdom is the whole earth. So when Jesus says, depart from me, what he means is, you're not gonna remain here on the earth. And notice he also calls them accursed ones, The word accursed means you are under a curse, which means they're under the curse of eternal judgment. They're gonna go into the eternal fire, which he says later is originally prepared for the devil and the angels and so on. You know, there's a popular myth today. Uh, It's certainly in the world. I think it's even in the church that says when a person dies, an unbeliever dies today and they go to hell, that they're greeted by Satan who's down there waiting for them and so on. Well, friends, the Bible's very clear about this. Satan is not in hell, nor will he ever be in hell. The lake of fire, which is a different place than hell, the lake of fire is Satan's future home. And one day, he will join unbelievers there, and that will be their home together. But today, this is his home. Satan roams the world, and unbelievers, when they go to hell, they are simply there with the rest of the unbelieving history of humanity, and it's not a party they find down there, they just find misery. Now, back to the goats. At this point, the goats are equally confused, maybe even more confused in some ways than the sheep were, because they 
can't tell the difference between themselves and these other people who lived through the same seven years they did and have lived to the end just like they did. And Jesus is telling this group he's really happy about them, but he's looking at them and saying, you're not okay. And so they try to make sense of it. And if you think about it from their point of view, it is logical. I mean, they're kneeling probably before Jesus. They're confessing Jesus. Remember Paul said, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So from their vantage point where they are, they're doing the same things the other group is doing. Why are they not getting the same credit? And earlier, when the sheep asked for their explanation, well, Jesus, you notice, he never said anything about their faith. I mean, he alludes to it by calling them righteous and all, but he never says, you shall enter my kingdom because you had faith in me. But of course, we know that's what was behind it. That's what caused them to act the way they did. That's why they're called righteous. But in what the goats heard, they just heard Jesus talking about their good works. Now, when it's time for them to be judged, they're saying, you know, what's the difference? And Jesus says, well, you lack the good works, the service that they had. You never served me when they did serve me. So their lack of service, in this case, is a reflection of the way they never knew Jesus. They never knew him. Remember that one slave from our earlier parable in this chapter, the parable of the talents? There was that one slave who buried his one talent. He said he knew that the master was a hard man and that caused him to want to put that talent away in the ground. In reality, he was just lazy, remember? But as we looked at that talent, we realized his behavior was evidence that he never really had a relationship with that master. He didn't really know the guy. He said he was a hard man, but what he didn't know is he was also a man who rewarded his servants and encouraged them to do well and knew their abilities and was giving them talents according to their abilities. In other words, he was a stranger to his own master. And in that detail, we find why that one slave was put into the place of gnashing and weeping of teeth. Frankly, he was an unbeliever in the way the parable is applied. And now you see that pattern here again. These unbelievers lived through the same tribulation as those believers, but they did not have that inclination to serve Jesus because they did not know him. They did not understand him. They certainly did not share the compassion for the persecuted Jews that the sheep did. They were living exactly according to the biblical principle that Paul gives us in Galatians. They were not only not sympathetic with the Jews, they were the ones persecuting the Jews. Paul says this in Galatians 4, 28. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, well, so it is now also. Paul gives us a precept of Scripture here. The unbeliever will always persecute the believer. The one who is born of the flesh has an instinctive desire to put away things born of spirit, to oppose them, to persecute them. You see it in examples like Isaac and Ishmael, but Paul says it's always been that way and always will. And so the unbelieving world in the time of tribulation, uh, led by the Antichrist, will go on a tremendous persecution campaign against any who believe in Jesus and against the Jews. And that is simply a way of revealing their hearts. These goats could not understand why they were being condemned, but that's because they don't understand who Jesus is. They don't get it, and that's why they couldn't understand it. 
You know, if you don't know that you are a sinner, you don't have a reason for a savior. If you don't realize you're gonna be judged one day, then you're not concerned with finding a way to be forgiven. If you don't realize what it means to have saving faith, then you won't understand when you're condemned for lacking it. The only thing Jesus could do to these people was explain the difference in behavior. Not because behavior is what made the difference, but because it reflects the difference in their hearts, and it's the only thing these goats could relate to. That's what living for Christ is in a nutshell. You know when you're pleasing Jesus because you'll be able to point to yourself, to these examples of your works, as evidence of your faith. We have a word for that kind of living, by the way. It's called being a witness. A witness is someone who testifies to the truth, like in a trial. And that's the goal of serving Jesus. It's to be a witness to this world. It's not about achievements. It's not about fame. It's not about being busy 24 hours a day. It's about creating in your life a witness that leads people to know and follow Jesus. And I hope that, maybe more than anything else, is what you take away from what we've learned in this two-chapter lesson on the Olivet Discourse, particularly as it applies to eternal reward. That in the nature of these last days, through the course of all that will come and is already coming, we need to understand our purpose in doing works for Christ, first and foremost, is to please him by being a witness and to incentivize that good behavior. Christ has said he delights to reward those who serve him well. I hope you've gained that new perspective on serving Jesus. I hope you want to please him. I hope you want to strive to serve him better. I hope you want to do it more consistently. Let me just encourage you as we wrap up today, don't waste another minute. And we've said already that the rapture could happen at any time, literally in the next moment. And because we don't know when it's coming, we need to be ready. And being ready means to be found doing what the master has left us to do. But don't dream up some big, involved, burdensome plan of work. It's not that. Just make every day about seeking to show the love of Christ wherever you're sent, whatever it is you have to do in that day, however you go about your day. You have a bad moment at the, at the desk of the post office with a clerk who won't do what you want, show the love of Christ to that person. You have a bad moment at home with your spouse, you have a, a tough situation somewhere else in your life, that's where you have an opportunity to do the things that Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, welcome into the joy of your master. That's what it means to serve Christ. And in the, the process, you may find bigger opportunities here and there. Christ may call you to something greater from now and then, but uh, those aren't the things that we get opportunity to do every day. Every day is about serving people in love, and that's, that's with an eye toward your witness. Let's go to prayer, and let's think that now as we move out into new things in this book. Think about how you're serving Jesus in light of your witness, and about how it has a possibility to influence others for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for two difficult chapters and more to come, but I ask you, Father, that what we've learned now, we'd We'd hold on to for a time. We'd reflect on these things and it would change how we walk with you, how we think about our purpose in serving you. Even as the days grow short and we know that the end is near, we ask, Lord, that you would uh, encourage us all the more. Not to be burdened, not to be worried, not to be stressed, but to take upon us the easy yoke of serving Jesus where we are in love. And uh, give us new opportunities this week to do that. We thank you, Father, that you've encouraged us in this. And we thank you for a church that teaches this and for a community that wants to live it out. 
And I, I look forward, Father, to being together with that community again soon, as you will appoint. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.